Blog Talk Radio. Actually, 
I believe if you want to hear uh, the other programs, go back to January of 2000. Gosh, I think it's 2018 already. <laughs> Are you kidding me? 2018. It's been about almost two years now. I, I, I dedicated almost all of January to trying to expose what's going on, how it's happening, and uh, the reasons for it. And uh, I think that the program today will have more uh I don't want to say importance, but maybe it will uh, – pertinence, is that the word I'm looking for? But um, because right now everybody is sort of seeing what's happening, I think the public out there, if you love tennis, you love the sport of tennis, you know for a fact that there are some changes taking place, and it doesn't seem like all of them are that good. And, and, and again – um, I always say you can address issues, not people. Stay professional. You can say whatever you want to say. This is still the United States of America, and we do have uh, the right to speak uh, speak our minds, and that's what this program is supposed to do. I try not to address people, but I will address those organizations like the USDA and the ITA, and some of them that I do not think, um, whether it's through – I'd say ignorance or just not knowing or not having the pulse beat or whatever, but there's some of them are doing great, great damage to our sport. And um, maybe they think they're helping, but, but they're not. So that being said, I, uh, the program will be a little bit shorter today, but I want to go through it and try to explain what has gone on, where we're at, why we're there, and then try to have some solutions um, to this this uh, disease that is spreading, virus that is spreading, and boy, isn't that the, the other thing? Isn't that awful? The daggone uh, um, virus that we have going on out there. That's um, that COVID thing. It's it's just uh, insidious, isn't it? If we I tell people that you feel like you're dog paddling or treading water in a duck pond and ducks are just swimming around you. And is it by design? Was this thing done purposely? There's so many questions that need to be answered. But I do know that the plus that has come from it, we've really had to go inward and look at our families, our relationship with people, our relationship with God, or we, we have we've had to go in and look a little deeper at some of the things that we are doing. But it's time for me to get on with the program and try to explain a few things. Um, I'd like to start out by talking about the history of the abbreviated scoring. So I'm one of the only coaches probably around or maybe alive that was in the meeting in 1977 in Corpus Christi, Texas, in a small classroom, and we had a grand total of 36 college coaches in there. And with 36 college coaches in there, we had one of the coaches go up, and by the way, this was an ITA, Intercollegiate Tennis Coaches Association. It was called ITCA. In that meeting, we had one coach go up um, and um, make this great appeal that, listen, we ought to look at trying to play these this Van Allen scoring system, VAS. V-A-S-S, which is a shortened scoring system, which we all now call NOAD. And um, he said, look, we can put a red flag up when there's a 3-3 three, three point, and they, called, they scored by just calling it 1-2-3 three 
game. They didn't do 15-30-40. He thought that was a detriment. So we can try it for one year, and uh, let's see how this goes. It was supposed to be a one-year experiment. It, and, and the vote passed 36 people in there. I think it was 19 to 17. At most, it was 20 to 16. At very, very most, it was supposed to be a one-year experiment. So we tried this about 1979 uh, till we we played it through the 80s, and um, it was really very quite strange. Some of the things were happening. It, it yes, it went a little faster, and at first it was novel, and uh, people who got the hang of it seemed to be people who were attacking players at first. Uh, the big servers got a hold of it and sort of liked it. They had shorter service games. They didn't have to go deep into the service game and deep into the count as a pitcher would with a have-to with a batter. They could hit four big serves and be done with the game. It, it Obviously, it had that. I noticed right away as a young coach that some of our smaller players, some of our counterpunching players, our so-called grinders, were having difficulty with it. They'd get to the game point, which was a three-all point, and push a lot. Or they'd be their coach would be telling them get to the net, get to the net. Well, a lot of them that wasn't their game. They they worked on the the rules of attrition and would grind the players down. Those kind of things happened. But little by little. We did see several players having to take losses they didn't have to take. Now, players who played in the 80s will argue that, wow, well, we had a lot, an influx of very good players. But you've got to know that in the 1980s, <coughs> excuse me, we did not have any so-called NCA rules on the amount of matches that we could play. We uh, we were allowed to play as much as we wanted to. Uh, <clears throat> I had a player who had a 70, 69 and. 17 record he played 86 matches as a freshman i played tournaments and things still made the grades by the way you say how in the world could they do that well you could play you play tennis is a sport where you need a lot of at bats and you need a lot of reps well we made uh my particular team where i coached at clemson at the time made big jumps and um because we played a lot and trained hard and our players continue to get better and we started turning players into the pros and we got a lot of reps so the no ad scoring that we played didn't hurt all that much because we did play regular scoring a lot in practice and we played it a lot at tournaments and and it was pretty much just something we did as a hybrid thing and you've got to remember that we played six full two out of three sets regular scoring um, in singles and then we would play three doubles and you did not really see the damage, but there were very often lots of upsets. Uh, I'll give you an example. University of Georgia with using, no, this was a different case, but using 10-point tiebreakers for the third set. Remember, they had a loss to uh, Lander in the 1990s using abbreviated scoring. Excuse me, but there were many, many upsets, many upsets, uh, and uh, <clears throat> the players who played in front of big home crowds had an advantage. Players would choke a lot, and it, it, we just but did not know enough about it to see the <clears throat> the good points or the bad. Well, pretty much toward the late 1980s, uh, a lot of coaches got together and realized that this was not a good thing, and the USTA 
realized that why were they playing no ad in college when they weren't playing at the professional ranks and there was a vote done uh actually it was brought to the floor several times but about 1991-92 we changed it and went to regular scoring and uh i think that there was a different format done at that time we went to eight game pro sets three eight game pro sets which was Fair, it wasn't the best. It wasn't as good as two out of three sets, but we went to that. And Paul Scarpa from Furman actually gets the credit for coming up with, we call it the Scarpa system. And some of the uh, executives on the ITA board did not like that for him to get the credit, but he deserves all the credit. And then we played full matches for singles. <clears throat> and it was okay. <clears throat> Personally, uh, it was better when we played six singles and then three doubles because at the end of the match it was always quite exciting to have the three doubles teams out there trying trying to win but no ad scoring was done we were we were finished with it and um i think players start really developed and it was a fair system so up until about 2000 for the next 20 years we played traditional scoring The traditional scoring served us well to, to, to for players to grow. Now, uh, there was a reduction on matches in 1992 or 93 right in there. The NCAA came in and cut our matches down to 25 matches a year. Can you believe that? It was awful. 25 matches a year just was not enough, has never been enough. You cannot You cannot get better than 25 matches. When baseball plays – I think 62 games, or they used to play 66 games, 62. They get 62 games. Even basketball has 31 contests. Tennis only gets 25. You can see very quickly only playing 25 contests now, especially if you play no ad or abbreviated scoring, and it goes quick. Well, your guys just don't get enough reps, and it was very quickly uh, easy. To, it was very easy to see without many years there and uh, when they started reducing the amount of matches playing that uh, college might not be the way to go if you wanted to play professional tennis. Along in that time as well, a lot of the coach figured, coaches figured out, listen, we, we can't build great teams by training them. There's not enough hours and there's not enough time given to us with training. They don't get enough reps. So they started going overseas and predominantly started recruiting international players. And you can imagine by the end of the 1990s, the Internet started coming in. So that whole thing uh, really, really uh, took off. And uh, the infrastructure in the U.S. tennis started breaking down through the early 2000s because the spots on college teams were going to international students. And I don't want to get off on the tangent of Title IX, I've often said on our program here that Title IX was a very good law, but very, very poorly implemented. It was never meant to destroy men's sports. But here's the bigger thing. It was never meant to protect young ladies from other countries. It was meant to protect young ladies from the United States of America, your daughter and my daughter. Well, that's not what happened when coaches – when you cannot train more than 
20 hours a week and 25 matches a year, uh, it, it takes a lot of ingenuity, creativity, and just very being extremely organized to be able to help players develop their game to the level they need to. Uh, any of the players that play overseas, Europe and things, they, they play probably twice as much. When I was coaching up in the D.C. area, there was a college team there that would come and practice at our facility. And our kids who were 14 and 15 years old played twice as much tennis as the college kids do. And when that started happening, you can see what happens to the college infrastructure. For years and years and years, college was the stepping stone to the professionals. I've recently been reading uh, Roy Barth's book about um, um, Point of Impact is his name. And also Rod Laver's book was excellent this summer. If you want to know what it takes to be a professional tennis player, read Rod Laver's book, the biography of Rod Laver. It's put out by, um, daggone it, it's put out by, forget the name of the press. Look, look it up. It's just Rod Laver, an autobiography, and it was out like last year. Triumph Books, Triumph's Books, that's it, T-R-I-U-M-P-H, Triumph Books. But it is the best, best documentary book I have ever read on what it takes and what Rod Laver went through to be a great tennis player. In those years, back in the days of the 60s and the 70s, players literally would go to college, American kids. They would get the training they need, and they would progress into the professional ranks. Now, if you will look at what's happening, there's very few of our players progressing from the college ranks into the professionals. Some might say, well, these international players, there are some international players that come and play college tennis, but then go into the pros, but not many Americans. In the 1980s, one year, I think it was 1986, we had 41 USA-born men and women make the top 100 after going to college today we only have three three and it it, it is it uh is a proof the proof is in the pudding but it's uh right in the pudding proof that college is not training prof- professional players and that's a shame because football players got to go to college basketball college Baseball, got to go to college first. Even golfers, the amount of professional golfers that go through our college system then go into the pros, the numbers are staggering compared to tennis. So we are not doing the job in in tennis. So getting back to when they started abbreviating things, and, and, and listen, I blame the ITA as much as the ITA um, has done some good things for the sport of college tennis. They were absolutely dumbing many, many things down during that period, looking for some hybrid method to either make money, become more popular, but none of it was done for player development. So that's what happened in the 80s and the 90s. Now let's fast forward to 2012. In 2012, there were 36 teams. Wow. Excuse me, 32, 16 men, 16 women. Wow. By the way, combining the two tournaments, men and women, was voted down in an ITA meeting I was in 51 to 2. 
They did not want – none of the men coaches wanted to have men and women together because of the uh, – not – there's so many problems when you bring so many teams together, but it is an organizational nightmare. But they had the tournament in 2012, 32 teams there, and guess what? It rains the first day. So, of course, the first-round matches, they're trying to get them done, and they're playing late into the night, and some of the NCAA officials are saying, wow, this is too hard on our student-athletes. Well, maybe so. But you have 32 teams there. It's just it's a logistical nightmare. And whoever wanted that, again, it was 51-2 to two against doing it, but the ITA pushed it through anyway. They didn't pay attention to the vote of the coaches. When they did that, and there were so many people there, those people who were in favor of promoting no-ad scoring or abbreviated scorings jumped on the opportunity. They did not let a crisis go to waste. I was sitting in a meeting with some of the people who pushed this forward on the ITA board in 2008, and they were talking about how they were going to try to get no-ad pushed back into college tennis. Well, in 2012, this happened, and then there was a vote online, and I don't know what, a couple of the players up in Michigan got it started. There were 10,000 signatures that took a petition against doing it. Well, then it was tabled for two more years, and the ITA kept pushing and pushing. In 2014, it all came to a head. I drove eight hours myself down to a meeting in Sarasota, Florida, went into the meeting, and we debated and discussed and discussed the pros and the cons of doing this. Now, you've got to understand the Ivy Leaguers wanted no-ad scoring. Most of the Southern coaches did not want it. The, up the, the, a lot of the teams from the North were in favor of no ad scoring. Number, there's a couple things. They did not understand the damage that no ad does. And secondly, the thing that they did not understand was the fact that we had had this long, long history of showing how much it had failed all through the 1980s. And um, it was camouflaged somewhat, again, because players got to play so much back then and in the summer times, we had many, many circuits in the 1980s. You, you've got to understand, in the 1980s, we had 51 tour events, 51. I think now in the professional tour, we only have 13. I think it was 12 or 13 at last count. So they were all those. There were satellite events. There were challenger events. So players played a lot. And no ad was a little bit of a hybrid, but it did not do the damage. But it the, there was not a history lesson, or nor, nor was there anyone explaining all the damage that no-ad scoring had done, abbreviated scoring, uh, when we went into this meeting in 2014. The long and the short of it, we came out of the meeting with a vote against no-ad scoring. We had a vote to stay with traditional scoring, and the vote was 21 to 19 in the end, and I was quite excited. I was driving back uh, back to uh, my home, and uh, one of the coaches called me and said, Chuck, you wouldn't believe what they did. They went behind closed door, and the head of the ITA says, look, we can pretty much do whatever we want to do. And they said, we're going to push no ad forward. So they did. They wanted to get Division I first. So they, they pushed Division I 
for out there first, the ITA, and they tried to strong arm everybody by just saying everybody's going to play this. Well, they had tremendous pushback, some from even great coaches like the Lynn Loring. There were petitions done, 1,343 student-athletes petitioned against it uh, from a, the a top player at the University of Virginia at that time. He got a, a, a petition out, petition together. Um, out of all of the women's coaches, 194 coaches on the women's side said they did not want, they wanted to play full matches. They did not want to play no ad scoring. Well, the ITA did it anyway. So what happened in 2016, two years more, uh, we were sort of in limbo. The ITA was running their tournaments with no ad, and the NCAA matches were, we were doing on our campuses, we were playing traditional scoring. The ITA basically made a big squawk, and they made a big move, but the NCAA stuck strong, or uh, stuck with the coaches strong and said, look, we're going to – in 20 – I believe in 2015, I get out my notes here, 2015, we're going to play traditional scoring still. I think it's 2016. Well, the ITA went behind the scenes, and they loaded the deck. They got their own people onto the NCAA Tennis Committee, and they changed the rule. And out in – we were at Baylor, I believe, um, whatever year that was. Baylor, 20, maybe it's 2016. And we were playing the NCAA tournament, and the ITA announced that all the events were going to be no ad next year, and they had gotten the NCAA to agree to do it without a vote, without a vote of all the coaches. And there's more and more and more, but basically the ITA strong-armed everybody into doing this. And uh, we've had a lot of pushback within the conferences, but a lot of the coaches just go along with it. And a lot of the coaches don't understand. And if you, and again, unless you have, I've got a 42-year history in college tennis now. And unless you understand the history of what happened with the college tennis and the ups and the downs, and I just gave you an, a shortened version, really, over the last 20 minutes or so. Unless you understand the whole part of it and everything that happened, it's very hard to understand. And even back in the 80s it took me two or three years to understand and to see the damage that was done to a lot of players it should have could would have been uh top professional players but they just had to take too many losses i don't think there's anyone out there that would disagree with me in saying that if you are better than another player and you win nine out of ten times no ad scoring or abbreviated scoring makes that only six or seven. You've got an advantage maybe because you're better, <clears throat> but you've got to take a lot more losses because it promotes randomness. So where are we today? Well, they have pushed it into Division II tennis. They have pushed it into NAI tennis, and they're strong-arming D3 as well. They're trying to make it. Now they're calling it the college system. Huh. So here's where we're at. Those of you who are not college coaches, those of you – who have a youngster playing junior tennis, you will go to the tournament and you'll say, why are we playing no ad? And the, the canned answer that the tournament director might give you that has already been pre-programmed by the USTA or the ITA or somebody is, oh, we're going to play the college system. Okay, now here's where we go with that. Tell them 
that you don't want to play the college system when your kids are in high school. You don't want to play the college system. And what sport do you have to play the college system rules? Any sport? Baseball? No, it's seven innings instead of nine, right? Oh, wait a minute. Football? Do we have to play the college rules? Do we have to play college rules? And basically, here's where you need to go, parents. Parents, listen to me on this. I've battled straight up many, 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 many times. I've I've earned some stripes and some badges for the battles I've been through. But you've got to tell them, and this is absolute truth, that the cheating that happens in NOAD tennis is above and beyond anything that anybody has ever seen. Why? Because the game point is an eight-point swing. I'll come back and explain that. It's an eight-point swing. NOAD scoring is an eight-point swing swing on game point so there has never been a sport so much emphasis on one point one or one point lost it is an eight point swing I'll be back to explain that here in a second I want to continue on with with what they're what they're doing so I've often asked, uh, again, and I wanted to, for, for your information, you've got to talk to officials and say, look, it's too much. Basically, high school tennis is ridiculous to use no ad. It's way too much pressure for your high school kids. They don't understand the ins and the outs. I went to a high school match that my daughter was playing in. She's a seventh grader. They allow seventh graders to play, actually, in some high schools. And the cheating with these young 11 or 12 and 13 and 14-year-old young ladies was unbelievable on game points. They learned very quickly that that game point is a seven is a eight point. It's an eight-point swing. So they say the college system. Don't let them say that. Here I I call it. I call it something else. I call it the Ivy League system because the Ivy Leagues are the ones that really, really, really pushed it forward. Why? Okay, here's why they did no ad scoring. I first evolved thinking, no, this is all Ivy League because Ivy League wants randomness. They've always had like an 18 point, 18, uh, sorry, an 18 match uh, top out where everybody else used to get play, be able to play a lot. In other words, what they did was dumb down the amount of matches played so that there was uh, it, it brought lowered the bar. So if the Ivy League's playing 18 matches and your team was playing 40, you definitely have an advantage. So what did they do? Instead of trying to play more matches, they dumbed everybody down. So I used to call it the Ivy League system. But I used to think it was Ivy League parity and wanting random randomness. Well, here's here. Let's go forward. Maybe that had something to do with it. I thought maybe convenience. Just lazy coaches, you know, don't want to be out there. Maybe it's for convenience. And when uh, Jimmy Van Allen was promoting it back in the, um, gosh, the early '70s, late '60s, early '70s. He was promoting the excitement of it all. Well, it's not about excitement on that game point. It's it's really about terror. It puts terror into the players and it makes 
women back up in their game and push more and men run to the net on crazy balls who just and they overplay or underplay most people overplay or underplay and uh but i always say that excitement dwindles with each occurrence but drama intensifies with each denial all you have to do is watch the wimbledon finals the five set matches and some of the great five set matches we've had in the drama has you sitting on the edge of the seat it's the drama of the back and forth plays that really is more exciting now a lot of the a lot of the uh, coaches who are promoting this with the ITA said, no, we're going to get you on TV. Well, I, used to, I would say in a meeting, well, if you're going to get us on TV, we'll do a hoochie-coochie show out there. We don't care. But don't make everybody play just because one match might be televised. Don't make everybody play this silly system of no-ad scoring. Well, I think that is a red herring more than anything. I, I've often thought, yeah, it's just maybe that's just ignorance on the part of the coach coaches. I'm sorry to call any coach ignorant. I think some of our officials are that they might not be up to snuff with understanding the level of competition and what makes a great tennis player. And even some of the coaches say, well, it's more exciting. Well, there's so many negatives to it. You only get to play maximum of seven points. Doesn't the pitcher's count matter in baseball? Isn't it important to extend a pitcher past three or four or five pitches? Don't you think it's important to extend a server past maximum of seven points, especially the big server? How does the small guy break down the big server if the big server only has to has to play seven points maximum? Huh. How, how does... How does that small guy get enough body punches in? How does that middleweight boxer get enough body punches in to tire out that big hitter? There are so, so many things. So I used to just think it was a matter of ignorance or naivety uh, would be the word, um, that that player people who don't play enough tennis or don't see the depth of it or haven't been around it for enough years just don't understand Time is not about time. Do you know in the 1986 or 7, we had a study done with no ad scoring and regular scoring. The average match no ad was longer than a regular two out of three set normal match. The reason why is no ad promotes more three set matches. It never allows the favored player to consolidate his advantage and run forward with the lead. No ad very much. It's like would be like running a race, um, a three mile race first of all, and every time a player gets ahead by a hundred yards, you get have to reel him back in to only be a five yard lead. You you constantly make a player reestablish their lead and consolidate it again and again and again. It allows randomness and allows the underdog player to hang in. I for years. Uh, folks, I used to ask my players, I would say, my players, when did you win the match before you won the match? And they would look at me and say, uh, okay, coach, uh, I know, 2-1, second set, we had that long, long game, that war zone game. And then what happened was that I won it and then the guy went away. And then the rest of the match was 15 minutes. And that very much is what happens in a, in a tennis match. All of those things were reasons why I thought that 
no ad was being promoted. Recently, if you listen to my program from January in 2018, I was in a meeting down in Florida, and a very knowledgeable computer expert guy put up on the board, he put $70 million. I go, we go, whoa, where's this going? He says, this is the amount that the ITF, the International Tennis Federation, got from the gambling industry last year. You can look it up, folks. Look it up. Look up uh, gambling money, ITF. It's 19, 2017, and Inside Tennis, I think, was the name of rule. But it's talked about now you got $70 million for online scoring. Huh. Ran on the scoring, so every time your referee is punching in a number, they're also sending it at any of these professional tournaments. And actually, they're allowed to gamble now on college, which is disgusting. Last year, they passed that. I think the Supreme Court passed that they're allowed to bet on college. Most people don't know that tennis is the second most bet on sport in the world. And it's not because it's the most, second most exciting sport or most attended sport. It is because, folks, it is because that tennis has the most opportunities to gamble. In a 128 draw, 128 players, you have 127 matches throughout the tournament. In a 32 draw, you have 31 matches. Everyone understands where we're going here with this. There are more gambling opportunities. So what pays the house the best? Pays that, well, randomness. There's no money to be made if you're betting against or for uh, Rafael Nadal at the French Open. You know, in, in definitely in the first four or five matches, but let's throw in no ad scoring and let's throw in a tiebreaker for the third set. So maybe that has more meat on the bone than anything. Maybe that's pushing the ITF to promote this. Again, go back to my program. I think it's January 31st of 2018. I believe you can go to chuckcreasy.net and get all the programs, but we spelled it out loud and clear. All of those reasons may be reasons why advocates of no ad scoring are pushing it forward. So now they're doing this thing called the third set tiebreaker as well. And uh, I want to very quickly go into the negatives of why we should not do these things. And uh, I know this has been a long history lesson today, but listen to these. Hang with me for a few more minutes here, uh, and and let me explain a few things. First of all, folks, look, our sport is about 150 to 53 years old. For 142 of those years, we have used at least 145, and we still, in our major tournaments, are using traditional scoring. All of the records, all of the learning, the same sport, everything has evolved naturally. But when you change the scoring system, all of a sudden you don't have the same complexities, the same situation, the same learning, but mainly the same credibility. Credibility. Will we be uh, is a Grand Slam champion? Someone who wins three out of five sets in a long match, 
should they be dumbed down to the same level as someone who plays no ad scoring and plays tiebreaker for the third? Now, we're not just talking about big matches, professional matches here. We're talking about your youngsters. We're talking about tournaments, rather whether it was Orange Bowl, Copper Bowl, uh, Easter Bowl, the Cracker Land, the Pepsi 16, any of these tournaments of heritage that have had traditions and great traditions of players winning. The dumbing down of these tournaments has been quite, quite bad, very, very bad. And so you, you upset the history of the sport. There is not the credibility. The growth of the young player is, number two, the biggest detriment. Our players never learn to play the long matches, not just talking about conditioning, not just talking about their ability to concentrate for long periods of time, not just talking about the serving uh, breakdowns that happen when players have to hold serve on long, long games. The pitch count matters. But our youngsters never learn simple things here like three winning three points in a row, how important Winning three points in a row is in tennis. If you don't win the first point of the game in traditional tennis, you have to win three in a row or four out of five. That takes a lot of skill in itself because of the fluctuating pressure of points one in a row and not. Fitness has always been a cornerstone for success in our sport. Conversion points, three in a row I spoke about. War zone endurance, their ability to play long games and construct long games. There's something that I became aware of a very long time ago when I started teaching tennis in order to get a tennis player better and for them to learn, like my daughter, who I'm teaching right now, for example. First, players learn to lengthen rallies. Then they learn to lengthen the points. Then they learn to lengthen a game, the amount of games that they play. Then they learn or the, the, the points in a game to lengthen the length of a game. Then they learn to lengthen sets. Then they learn to lengthen matches. Then putting tournaments together, seasons together, and careers together. It takes a lot of skill to finally emerge to being a semifinalist in the tournament. But you, you see where I'm going here. The lengthening of rallies, then points, then games. Wait a minute. Games is third of four, five, six, seven, eight. We're only 30% of the way there. If we take out that critical ability and skill set that youngsters need to figure out how to lengthen games and to play long games, you're taking one of the pillars away from their ability to learn. Is there a correlation between abbreviated scoring and us not having a U.S. men's champion at a Grand Slam since 2002, some 76 tries, 75 tries to be exact? Is there a correlation? Is there a correlation that our youngsters are not developing their, their the sport uh, to the level that they need to? We is there a correlation that our high school programs have become after school programs, after school activities instead of great programs? Maybe there's a correlation in the toughness that's involved and what's needed. Point construction is is just a very very important skill. And, and carrying lead is a very important skill that has to be learned. And you don't learn how to carry leads properly. 
Here's one that no one understands, but when you talk to them, the rites of passage of going forward when you win a credible tennis match is a very, very impacting, and it's a very, very transitional and very, very, it's a documentable time. Every player can go back and remember a critical match that they won that that made all the difference in their tennis careers. Whether one I had a 20 to 18 in the third set in 1968, I still remember that match. It was a critical, critical match for my learning and my development. We are taking these things away from our youngsters. So the rites of passage, the proper rite of passage in winning in the right way needs to be done. But losing that tough match just as well. To lose a very, very long and hard match always puts a player in a position where they have to make a decision to quit or to try again. And that's a very, very important stage for them to be in. Look, no ad is just not a rule of tennis either. It was made up by a guy named Jimmy Van Allen. He made it up. He made it up. It was never a rule of tennis. It was adopted basically because of promotion and a a coach – used it as a benefit to actually to put a uh, situation up that caused <laughs> allowed their team to win a lot more than they were probably capable of. It was sort of a home court advantage when they put the no, no ad rule up for tennis. It was done as a strategic thing. Scoring system should never, never, ever have been used. To, uh, as a um, as a tool for player development, the damage that is done is great, and our history has shown that our sport is a great, great sport—not just a game, but a great, great sport for many reasons. And the ball striking is involved in many different ways, but the scoring should not be shortened or hyped or done in in there's so many examples while wow, i mean uh if you use baseball football or any other sport there's so many examples but this is i want to give you something to hold on to when people ask you about no ad scoring and why you dislike it game point i said it was an eight point swing Tennis, every point is a two-point swing. We have one of the only sports is that if I'm playing against one of you and you lose the point, that means I win a point. It's a two-point swing. Could you imagine playing basketball, a basketball game, and every time that your team misses two points, the other team gets two points? It would be a four-point swing, wouldn't it? Well, tennis is a two-point swing. On game point, Everyone sees the 4-2 game as the most obvious. It's either 4-3 or 5-2 after that game, point, game. At 4-4, it's also obvious. If a person at 4-4 wins by a net court or they get cheated, cheating is unbelievable. Right now, there's just too much payoff. Let's say I, I take a line call or I call your serve out and call a double fault. I go up 5-4. I only need four. You need 12 now. But the first point, first game of the match, it's an eight-point swing. If you go up on a net cord, one to zero, 
and you're up four points, it's going to take me eight points to get up the one game or the four points I would have been up. It's an eight-point swing. So the cheating is unbelievable. It's out of control. It teaches our youngsters quick fixes. It doesn't teach them how to concentrate. It doesn't teach them how to be in shape. It is very, very random, and that's why I've always believed that the gambling money had something to do with it because of the randomness of it all. Somebody wants random results. It's interesting how all of our sports may be going that way. Baseball, are they juicing the balls? It sort of looks like to me. What about football with all the rules against defenses and strong defenses and the spread offenses and things? All the teams are scoring 40 and 50 points now. Is it is it something about maybe the gambling pushing this? Or well, Wait a minute, basketball, the three-point shot and the shot clock, and just making it so athletic, there's very little strategy anymore. Are they making this more random as as well? Are they making, in, in all the sports, all the sports, they are doing this somewhat too, and um, making it more athletic or more hype doesn't necessarily make it better. I want to talk very quickly about a couple other things. First of all, third set tiebreaker. Again, third set tiebreaker, the worst set scenarios show players tanking. If they win the first set against a better player, they tank the second and just try to win a tiebreaker. I see it all the time. Another obvious thing that happens in the 10-point tiebreaker for the third set is that players will, if, if, if I lose a first set against a very good player, it's very hard for me to say, oh, okay, i got to regroup. I still have to win two sets. But if I say, no, you know, all i got to do is win a one set and then I get to play a tiebreaker, it'll, that gives me just a little bit more emphasis to hang in there. But part of being a great player is breaking down the mind and the will of the other player. And that's what we're not teaching our players to do. We're not with the tiebreaker. And, and here's the biggest, one of the biggest arguments I have, too, is that players, when they play a tiebreaker, you know, for the third set, they do not get the right rite of passage. When they win a tiebreaker for the third set, it's sort of like kissing old Aunt, Aunt Mary or kissing old Aunt Alice. Uh, it's just not, it's sort of, okay, I won a third set tiebreaker. When you lose, it doesn't hurt enough either to make you want to advance. So what do you do if you have to abbreviate matches? That's what always comes back in these meetings if I'm in a meeting. I tell them, first of all, I, I have a list that lists nine, nine things. And uh, here, here, they, here they go real quick. The best, if you want something that's fair, square, and the best for player development, three out of five full sets, regulation scoring. The next best, second best, is two out of three full sets with regular scoring. Now, those are the only two that should be used for competition or competitive tennis. If you have to use any of the following, they should be used only in desperate situations. Let's talk about what number three should be. You could play number one and two sets, full sets, and maybe start the third set at 2-2 or 3-3. What about two out of three sets, set one, you could start at two to two and then play a full set for the second 
second and a full set for the third. You see where I'm going with this. The third set should be the defining set, should be a full set, not a crapshoot tiebreaker. Or I do a thing, number five, I do a thing often to practice, I'll call it the icebreaker. Instead of the tiebreaker for the third set, the icebreaker you have the listen to this high school coaches, this is a good format you might think about that's better. First of all, playing two two from the first set or two two from the third set is a, is a very good format. By the way, a 10-point tiebreaker, you only got to win 10 points. If you started at 3-3, you only got to win 12. What would be wrong with starting 3-3 in the third set? So set one, how about doing a tiebreaker in set one? Then you have to play full set for the second or third. The best player always wins that one. Six would be two out of three sets starting at 2-2. Two, two. Those are the four Four-game sets. That is the sixth best thing to do. Yikes, I don't like any of these. Or number seven, be two of three sets. Full set and tiebreaker for the third. I don't like that one. They're using number six and seven now a lot for abbreviations. Come on, USTA, UTR people, ITA people, get your heads in the right place and understand how screwed up that is and the randomness that it promotes. Number eight, two out of three sets, no ad scoring. Hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. Hate it, hate it. A-game pro set would be the next thing, regular scoring, if you had to do that. No ad scoring, again, is about one of the worst things there is. So I have a lot of notes here, and I have gone through a lot of stuff. And if you have hung in there and listened with me, first of all, <laughs> you and, and I, maybe you filled up a notebook. Maybe I just maybe I was able to fill up a little bit of your curiosity. Maybe just maybe you caught on to most of it. If you disagree or agree, send me an email at, at Chuck Creasy at Gmail. Chuck Creasy, Chuck K R I E S E at Gmail. Um, and also look at my website uh, ChuckCreasy.net. ChuckCreasy.net. Folks, I'm not for shortcuts. Shortcuts always, always, always cut you in the end. It doesn't help your youngsters. We need need to be after long-term learning for our youngsters with any of the tournaments they play. Remember, kids play for tournaments of heritage or rivalries. They don't play for points. Your parents might want points. The kids play for the rivalries. And that's what we need to keep them doing to keep them into process of being good players. Uh Let's keep working hard to develop the kids. Um, And, again, I'm an educator. I'm not an entertainer. I'm an educator. And uh, But I I hope I've given you some stuff to to, uh, hang on to. I'd like to leave you with this. All that it takes for good, for, for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing. All that it takes for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing. All that it takes for evil evil that would destroy our kids' ambitions, that would destroy our great game, to prosper is for good people to do nothing. Parents, you have got to speak out at these tournaments. No one has leverage over you. Be kind, stay professional, address issues, not people. We need the parents to get involved. We as coaches need to be involved. And I will fight every day I'm in tennis. 
I've been in tennis for 57 years now. I've been a teacher for 47 and a college coach for 42. And I got some reps in, but I do not want to see anything happen to our sport except for it to thrive. With that, I got I've got these notes. I know I've missed a few things, but folks, shortcuts do great harm. Never take shortcuts. It's there's uh I I always tell the players if you focus you don't need any hocus pocus and we need to focus on the long term development of our players and uh to do the right thing by them as they're learning to listen. God bless each and every one of you. You're always in the process of winning or losing every day of your life. And it has very little to do with the win or losses, Coach Chuck Reese.